Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode LXXIII from A Kingdom of Gold. Marcus Aurelius faced many threats to Rome during his time as emperor and spent more time at war than he did at peace. Unlike most emperors, though, succession was never an issue as he had a legitimate son, Commodus, ready to take his place should anything happen. Here's Rhiannon Evans. So in 178, we get another section of the Marcomannic Wars, this event that really crops up for Marcus Aurelius again and again and again. He never seems to be able to put it to bed. These Germanic peoples, he thinks he's done with them. He's been out of Rome for a good few years. When he returns to Rome, he realizes he's, he's got to deal with them again. And what Dio tells us is he responded in an interesting way, and this is a quote, when the Scythian situation, by Scythian he just means northern, once more demanded his attention, it caused him to give his son a wife, Crispina, sooner than he wished. Mm. That's Dio, book 7233. So uh, we've got a, a young Commodus at this point getting married sooner than he normally would have. Yeah, well, Commodus was born in 161, so he's 16 at this point, which would be perfectly reasonable and even earlier for a woman to get married. But for sons, it might they might wait a little bit. So this is unusual, and it indicates that Marcus is anxious about the future. And I think we get this impression from a lot of what we see with Marcus Aurelius. He really wants to have stability. And unfortunately for him, he lives at a time when stability is hard to get. Yeah. So he's, he's trying to reinforce the dynasty here. Mm. Um, and he marries uh, Commodus off to a woman called Crispina, who's a very noble background in Roman terms. Uh, she comes from a wealthy family. Her father had been consul twice. Her family is associated with previous emperors too, like Trajan and Hadrian. So she's exactly the right kind of background. Uh, it's not surprising that she would be chosen for Commodus. Mm. Remember, he's the only remaining son. But it's probably all happening a bit sooner than Marcus Aurelius would have chosen for himself. Yeah, yeah. Well, the last time he did something sooner when it came to Commodus was he made him assume adulthood mm -hmm. earlier than he would have. And that was in response to the rebellion of Vidius Cassius and wanting to to shore up his legacy and put that line in, kind of. And Commodus has already been made consul at this point, which means he's the youngest person ever to be made consul. yeah. It will get younger later, actually, but uh, at this point in history, that's bizarre. This yeah. is a this is a huge change in terms of everyone's been getting younger throughout the imperial period as mm. they keep promoting their their sons. Now we've kind of got to a point where we're really almost we're making children consuls. Yeah, yeah. So Marcus Aurelius and Commodus head north and rejoin the armies. Uh, they confront the Quadi first with the Marcomanni to be dealt with. What strategy is Marcus Aurelius employing here? Because this must be somebody who's been tired of the northern problems at this point. Well, we get the impression, particularly from Dio, that the Quadi are the ones that he's really frustrated with. And his response is to plan two new provinces, which is quite a revolutionary move because we haven't had any new provinces since Trajan. Mm. And straight away after Trajan, there was a pullback from that by Hadrian. So uh, he's planning Marcomania and Sarmatia. And if you look at a map where Sarmatia would be, it's kind of a dip in the line of the Roman frontier. So there's a gap there. You can see why he's trying to fill that between yeah. Dacia and Pannonia. 
And a province is is quite a radical change to this as opposed to having treaties with local peoples because we can't really think of this as one group of Germanic peoples. They also have a different dynamic between themselves. So some of them are scared of others and some of them are in conflict with others. Mm. It's not a simple situation. And I think he's kind of trying to simplify it by putting Roman power there yeah. so that he doesn't have to keep negotiating treaties with everybody. It's a further buffer zone. And it's also more Roman citizens. And it put troops permanently in those areas, wouldn't it? It would absolutely do that. So it would give him more rights to be there and not to have to negotiate that with local kings. And taxation. Taxation is very important. And he may well have needed it after the the length of this war Mm. that keeps going on and the population loss from the plague. So... This kind of makes sense from the Roman point of view of trying to keep their empire in control. It might have worked out well for him because there seems to be nothing else he can do. It's kind of an intractable situation. The Quadi in particular seem to drive fear into the other northerners. And they are kind of at the heart of some appeals to Marcus Aurelius from other peoples. So, for example, a group called the Iazages and another group called the Buri, uh, according to Dio, are really desperate for Marcus to make an agreement which will protect them from the Quadi. Dio, in Book 72, Chapter 18, says from their point of view, from the point of view of the Iazages and Buri, the Quadi are enemies dwelling at their doors, Mm. which is a very strong way of putting it. As I say, these are not one people or group together at all. So Marcus is letting people move around. He lets the Yazages pass through Dacia, but he decides the Quadi have to stay where they are. He's not going to let them move, even though they want to move through the land of the Semnones. So he's got all of these cards to put in place and they won't stay where they're meant to be from his point of view. Yeah, yeah. This all sounds very much like a negotiation, but it is definitely a war still happening, isn't it? It is a war because the negotiation, I think, is too difficult. Yeah, okay. Because you can't keep them where <laughs> Negotiation they need to be. by point of a sword. Yeah, because there are people who are allied to him who are very unhappy with the danger that they face. Yeah. Probably rightly so. And Dyer puts it quite strongly. He says... Antoninus learned, that means Marcus Aurelius, Antoninus learned beforehand of the Quadi's intention to pass through a certain area and prevented their departure. This showed that he desired not to acquire their territory, but to punish the men themselves. Yeah. So he's consistently characterizing Marcus Aurelius as someone who's not interested in empire for its own sake. No, but um, he's royally sick of war and wants yeah. to get back to his meditations. <laughs> Perhaps so. And and he may be putting it too strongly that he wants to punish them. Maybe he just wants it to stop. Yeah. All right. But it was not to be. 17th of March, 180 CE. So two years, two years after he set off north. Just over a month before his 59th birthday, Marcus Aurelius passes away. Yeah, so much has happened. It seems like he should be older than 59. And I think I'm influenced here by the way he's been portrayed in films by Alec Guinness and Richard Harris as very, very elderly. But of course, he's not. Even Roman terms, 59 is not Mm. very aged. Uh, He dies in a place called Vindabona, which is modern Vienna. So he's still up in the Northern Territories. Still with the army, I take it? Yes. Yeah. And Dio sort of seems to express regret about this, that it's happened. 
if he'd lived longer, things would have been better. Indeed, that's exactly what he says. Um, oh, so he does. Dio, his candle burnt out long before his legend ever will. <laughs> Sorry, that's an actual quote. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it was plagiarism going on there, I think. He actually says, Sorry, go, book yeah, 72, yeah, yeah, chapter yeah. 33, now, if Marcus had lived longer, he would have subdued that entire region. Okay, so he's doing a little bit of alternative history here, isn't he? That Marcus was the good guy and he would have solved it. Mm. Although, given what we've seen of a what a 19-year reign where he didn't manage to create peace, that may not have been so. But as it was, he passed away on the 17th of March, not as a result of the disease from which he still suffered, but by the act of his physicians, as I've been plainly told who wished to do Commodus a favour. All right, so let, let's unpack that. Let's start with the disease that he suffered. Uh, is that anything in particular? Well, we think it's plague. Okay, yeah, but he didn't pass away from that. Well, according to Dyer. It's very much Dyer. a conspiracy theory, isn't it? Don't yeah. trust the doctors. Mm. This comes up again and again. It, it had come up, for example, way back with the transition from Tiberius to Caligula. Mm. There might have been some foul play. And... A lot of people had died from plague. You know, Marcus is in the thick of it. It's not that unlikely. Yeah, yeah, including Lucius, allegedly. Yeah. And also remember that ancient doctors really were quite ineffective. Mm. So there wasn't much they could do. They tried to do things, but quite often they would fail. So it may not have been deliberate. But wishing to do Commodus a favour is, is assumedly, you know, putting him in the role of being an emperor. Yes, exactly, yes. By himself, because he was co-emperor at this point, of course. Yes, indeed. So that's Dio's view. Does the Augustan histories give us anything different at all? The Augustan history, and we get a bit of this in Dio too, as I'll mention, really want to end with Marcus as the philosopher, knowing he's going to die and expressing this to his friends and telling them that death is nothing. So a quote from the Historia Augusta, chapter 28, Marcus Aurelius is supposed to have said to his friends, why do you weep for me and do not rather think of the plague and of the death which is common to us all? Mm. You know, everyone dies. I'm nothing special. Yeah. Yeah, and and it very much has that resonance, not just the idea of... Death is it's everywhere, so there's no point in mourning it, but also I'm just one of many. Mm. I'm not special just because I'm emperor. Dio has him giving, I think it's an interesting combination. He gives us the soldier's watchword, in other words, the, the thing they have to say to each other to assure people that they are Roman yep. and not the enemy. It seems quite a long one to me. Go to the rising sun, I am setting. So he's aware of his own impending doom. And he's actually making that part of the military watchword, giving that to them as a, as a parting gift almost, but yeah. very involved with the military right up until the end. So I think there's meant to be a kind of poetic niceness about that in his death. And I think both of these sources, very different kinds of sources, want to give us a kind of poetry to the end of Marcus because they both think very highly of him. And they both tell us that everybody mourned for him, especially the army. It's probably no surprise that Marcus Aurelius is deified. This had happened to all the emperors going back to Nerva now and a lot of other people, especially around Hadrian. Uh, He's buried in Hadrian's mausoleum. And uh, the next emperor appointed is, no surprises to anyone, Commodus. I I suppose there's little resistance, really. 
Well, they this. can't be, can they? He's he's already co-emperor. He has been very much set up as a successor. Uh, there are no other sons. Uh, unless you're going to have a coup, it will be Commodus. Yeah, yeah. Young as he is, he will be emperor. But there's obviously concerns at this point. Or Well, I say obviously, but, you know, hindsight, upward inflection. But Marcus Aurelius must have been aware that there were issues with Commodus. I find this really, really difficult because that's the impression that Dio and the Historia Augusta give us, Dio in particular, that Commodus was a disappointment to his father. Mm. Dio, in various ways, marks out that this is a huge shift from Marcus Aurelius to Commodus. But it's all with the benefit of hindsight. And all of the indications we have, even from Dio and even from the Historia Augusta, sort of suggest the contrary. He's been co-emperor for three years. He's been married off so that he can create a dynasty at a very young age. He's been consul at 15. He's been brought up to the Germanic armies at 16 when there's trouble. Yeah. There's nothing in that to show that Marcus Aurelius was not trying to promote Commodus as the next emperor, that he had fears for him. And this is quite hard for us to get hold of, especially if we've seen Gladiator, because that's exactly what happens in that film. And then it's fair enough, really, because that is what's reflected in our sources writing after Commodus's reign. Mm. They have seen how awful it was from their point of view, and they kind of reflect that back onto Marcus Aurelius. They don't want to believe, I think, that Marcus wouldn't have foreseen this. He was a wise man. Oh, let's name names. I think it was Septimius Severus said something along the lines of, why did you make... Commodus Emperor when you had a perfectly good Pompeianus, that being Marcus Aurelius's son-in-law and general. But at the same time, it's a bit unreasonable for him to make an act like that, to make somebody else emperor, to even take out his son when it is his son and it is his right to become the next emperor. That's the rules. The rules are the rules. And he is very young, so who knows what's going to happen at this point. Yeah. There, there may not have been the kind of signs Marcus Aurelius could see. In the same way that there's a kind of people want a poetry to Marcus's death, they also, with the benefit of hindsight, see a sort of pattern, and they're quite right to see this, that it does seem to go disastrously wrong when you have a biologically connected son Mm. becoming emperor. They've seen it before with Domitian. The idea that there are five good emperors means that they're all emperors who've adopted each other. They've, mm. they've seen somebody with promise and chosen them. When it's your biological son, you're not choosing them, and that's when it goes wrong. So it, it seems very much like that's the way it works out. Yes. But I do think the most important thing in all of this is that desire to celebrate Marcus Aurelius And if Marcus Aurelius couldn't foresee how disastrous Commodus would be, what does that mean about his wisdom? Mm. The man who wrote a philosophical work and called it to myself, what does that mean about his insight? It doesn't work. So they have to say, oh, he did see it. But then why did he promote Commodus so assiduously? So the Historia Augusta says that Marcus is reported to have wanted his son to die when he saw that he would be what he became after his own death. So that, as he himself said, he might not be like Nero, Caligula and Domitian. That quote is very much dragging out the the kind of bogeys of the imperial system. The three really bad emperors who were all either murdered or forced to suicide. It's Dio who points out that your natural born son perhaps isn't the one who should be groomed for succession unless you can see qualities in him that would make him a good king. Mm. 
which is something that he points out about Caracalla as well. So for Dyer, who lives a little bit longer, he sees this pattern happening again with Septimius Severus's son, Caracalla, becomes emperor and he ends up being murdered. Yeah. So it's this pattern that Dyer keeps seeing and um, he, he therefore perhaps has good reason for saying, your own son may not be the best emperor. It's a problem that the ancients grappled with over and over again that you might have one good king, but does that mean the next one along will be the best? Therefore, maybe you should have a system where the king is chosen by merit. Mm. But that doesn't really fit with a dynastic system, of course. I've also got a quote here from a later emperor. How, how late's Julian? Julian, who was emperor in the 4th century, actually an interesting figure because he temporarily rejected Christianity. He didn't last very long, though. He, however, has some thoughts on what makes a good emperor, and he says, the instance of Marcus Aurelius and his degenerate son Commodus seems a case in point. The talk of disinheriting such a monster was too arduous, the virtue too exalted even for that philosopher. Mm. He's again implying Marcus must have seen how monstrous Commodus was, but he just couldn't, couldn't be make that move yeah. to disinheriting him. Fair enough. So what shall we say about Marcus Aurelius then to sum up? We've been talking about him for quite a while now, but I want to kind of gauge the mark that he's left on Rome. He's a really important figure from all kinds of points of view. He's somebody who has that rare combination that he's managed to satisfy the senators and he doesn't seem to have uh, alienated any particular group, at least in Rome. He kind of was unfortunate in that he was left with this intractable war. And two wars. Yeah. And it's not clear that he was well suited really for that position, but he didn't stop trying mm. to settle it. So I guess what we have in terms of the two main pieces of evidence from Dio and the Historia Augusta is so overwhelmingly positive that there's a little bit of me that wants to question that because the only thing they will say that's bad about him was that he, he shouldn't have let Commodus be emperor after mm. him. Mm. And even that is a way of pointing out how good Marcus Aurelius was because Commodus was so much worse. So let's see the contrast. I think that he absolutely does as well as he could in some quite difficult circumstances with you know terrible disease going on in the empire, with these wars breaking out that I think he would have much rather never happened. He's not interested in just conquering and creating provinces. I think he would rather be a good civic emperor and he doesn't get that opportunity. Mm. Yeah, there's very few buildings left behind that, you know, he made. But, but that was a product of the time. He didn't make a lot. I, I gather that they were running quite broke at the point. Um, yeah, I mean, the main thing you think of in Rome is the column of Marcus Aurelius, which is a kind of celebration of his wars. And, and it's built by his son. Yeah, and, and you do wonder whether that would be what he would want to be remembered for, mm. that and the statue in the Capitol Museums. I think Dio does, he gives us a great set of quotes towards the end of book 72. I like this one that really sums up that idea that Marcus wasn't suited to this kind of lifestyle, but he tried anyway. So mm. Dio says he ruled better than any others who had ever been in the, any position of power, which is a pretty extreme quote. He's the best ruler ever in the world. To be sure, he could not display many feats of physical prowess. Yet he had developed his body from a very weak one to one capable of the greatest endurance. Mm. So Dio gives us this impression of a man who's not physically strong, 
but who doesn't let that stop him, who kind of does his best. This idea of a leader who is mentally strong, and that means that he can go out on campaign and, you know, in the cold, frozen north and do his bit. He's not just going to sit back in Rome and enjoy himself as emperor. He's somebody who takes on the work. Mm. So where do you rank him then? I mean, we've had five good emperors to choose from, not to mention those that came before. So what do you think of him? I've changed my mind over a period of time. I mean, when you a period learn... period of eight podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> no, over years, I think, of thinking about him. When you first learn about him, it just seems like constant war. So there's a bit of me that thinks Marcus was a warmonger. But I, I think I've reassessed him as somebody who was pushed into those wars. Mm. And it's hard not to be swayed by the fact that he's an emperor who wrote a philosophical work, a couple of philosophical works. And I think there is a certain romance about that, that academics like that idea. I mean, he is basically the philosopher king that Plato hoped would be in charge. So I'm quite won over by that, I have to admit. Mm. I'm, I've got a little flirtation with Marcus. It'd be interesting to see what he would have done if it wasn't a time of war. Yeah, and also, if, as Dio actually says, if he'd lived longer yeah. um, and he'd managed to be an emperor with those wars behind Under him. Under his own terms, mm. yeah. And also, I guess... Perhaps if he had lived longer and been able to rule alongside Commodus, maybe Commodus wouldn't have turned out so disastrously. So the ultimate question, better than Hadrian? Oh, no one's better oh, than Hadrian. No, one, no one's better than Hadrian. I'm still a Trajan man. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a terrible haircut. Oh, but may you be better than Trajan yeah. and luckier than Augustus. He really was a warmonger, though. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> but that's a good Roman. Okay, so uh, let's finish it with that, that quote from Dio. This is a really good, morbid quote to take us into Commodus. Yeah, and it's got the, the best ending of any quote about emperors, I think. It was a long quote, so let's go. Yeah, wait, uh, reference? It's the very end of book 72. So Dio knows how to leave it on a cliffhanger. He does. Remember that we only have bits of Dio at this point, but I'm pretty sure this would have been the end. Clearly, this was a quote worth preserving. On Marcus, he did not meet with the good fortune that he deserved, for he was not strong in body and was involved in a multitude of troubles throughout practically his entire reign. But for my part, I admire him all the more for this very reason, that amid unusual and extraordinary difficulties, he both survived himself and preserved the empire. Just one thing prevented him from being completely happy, namely that after rearing and educating his son in the best possible way, he was vastly disappointed in him. This matter must be our next topic, for our history now descends from a kingdom of gold to one of iron and rust, as the affairs did for the Romans of that day. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Senior Lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome, Please give it a review or a rating in iTunes. It helps get word of the podcast out, and we read every bit of it. You can like the Emperors of Rome on our Facebook page, and you can follow myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, as the man Dio said, iron and rust. But until then, I'm Matt Smith, and you have been fantastic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>